Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. Thankfully, we always have the help of a new guest co-host each week who's an expert in their field. And then together we interview a guest about their work in design because design is everywhere and so are we. This week, we're learning about the role of design in social work. I'll be joined by Chokdi Rutirasiri, VP of Experience Strategy and Research at MADPOW. He's also an adjunct professor of design thinking at Boston College. And then later on, Chokdi and I will chat with Rachel Dikas. She's the founder of Social Workers Who Design, a cause-driven trauma-responsive design consultancy. Together, they will talk about the impact of design and social work, and we'll learn a lot more about the work they do. Before we get into it, though, I wanted to let you all know about our upcoming Kickstarter campaign in support of our next book. So we're working on a book based on our We Design exhibition. This is We Design People Practice Progress. This is a publication focused on the intersectional identities of designers belonging to historically marginalized communities. It celebrates their work, it celebrates their creative journeys into design, and it features some amazing dialogue that relates to design and I think will inspire young designers to create with authenticity. So the Kickstarter campaign officially launches on May 3rd, but you can go to dme.link slash kickstarter right now and get a preview of the campaign and you can pledge now to support the book so our backers get the book and lots of other cool benefits that you'll find on that website so again check out dme.link slash kickstarter and with that on to this week's topic In a Medium article for the UX Collective by Lindsay Cochran, Lindsay writes, Social workers see the impact of bad design and bad policies. They show up at their clients' homes to help them navigate broken systems and advocate for change. If bad design can disrupt social work, how can designers anticipate the needs of social workers? And how could social workers use design thinking in their own work? On this episode, we are exploring this intersection of social work and design. I'm so excited to be joined by my guest co-host this week, Chokdi Rutirasiri, to learn more. Chokdi is a designer, technologist, and educator. He utilizes a human-centered approach to designing systems and solutions that are inclusive, equitable, holistic, and sustainable. Since 1995, he has designed solutions for K-12, higher education, health and human services, startups, and nonprofits, just to name a few. Chokdi is now VP of Experience, Strategy, and Research at MADPOW. Chokdi's on our council here at the Design Museum. Very grateful for that. And he's committed to eradicating racism from the design industry. Chokdi, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Sam. Yeah, it's great to see you. What does design and social work look like? I mean, even preparing for this episode, it kind of like this aha moment that like social work's about people, design's about people. So it seems like a happy marriage. Uh, You've been working in this space. What does it look like to you? Yeah, social work. I think, you know, once I arrived at BC and I was doing more work with the School of Nursing, I got introduced to the folks at at Social Work there and specifically the Columbia Project. That was I work with Dr. Desmond Patton, who runs the Safe Lab uh, out of Columbia. And uh, Desmond and I uh, met because I heard him on NPR, All Things Considered, talking about human centered design. I mean, this must have been like 2017. And I immediately found him on Columbia's uh, directory, emailed him. I said, hey, I heard you on NPR. I'm going to be in Manhattan next week. 
I'd love to have coffee with you. I'm a designer. I work in the human-centered design space. Would love to just chat with you about what you're doing um, in social work. And specifically, you know, Desmond's work was focused on social media, its impact. His work focused on um, how gangs use social media to communicate. And then he brought this idea to all of us that like, hey, you know, let's let's look at this from an empathetic human-centered perspective. You know, and so he, as he's kind of taking a look and deciphering what folks are saying on Twitter, how we can foster empathy for the folks who are, are you know, suffering. I mean, you know, so the stuff we're doing for Columbia now that I, I've been a part of for a few years is through the mayor's office of um, criminal justice and a, a bunch of other collaborators. Columbia is on there and we're working with the residents of NYCHA, the New York City Housing Authority. And so there's 400,000, if I if remind, if I remember the number correctly, 400,000 residents who are living in NYCHA buildings. And so um, the mayor's office was looking to better, you know, they, they don't want to keep using crime statistics to figure out is the neighborhood healthy or not, right? They want to have better social determinants of health. And then they also want that to be determined by the residents, right? And have that be a participatory co-design process. So, so this seems to be like the perfect marriage of social work and design thinking and human-centered design. So we were, all, we were brought in Columbia and myself as an affiliate of Columbia to interview uh, residents in one-on-one and then host community advisory board meetings with the residents as well. And that's one third of the project. And so we're gathering and analyzing all, all that feedback now and really trying to ensure that we're empowering, you know, the folks who live in these residents, um, that we're centering their voices, that we're representing them 100% authentically, and really understanding the, the situations that some of them are in, especially given COVID, Black Lives Matter was another topic that we discussed with them, and also um, social media and their trust and faith in city government. Yeah, absolutely. How would you say, you know, designing in that space, designing for social work is unique to other design fields. I think what's interesting is that empathy is sort of the common thread between social workers and folks who practice design thinking, right? And I think, but I also think we practice empathy kind of in in a different way sometimes. And and it's interesting how social workers, I think, are are really adding to designers, kind of expanding our heart, our approach. We're seeing much. We're seeing terms like trauma-informed research now. We have the book Design Justice out there in the Design Justice Network, and they have their incredible principles for to guide our work. Um, I think design has finally embraced fully. Uh, I, I like to think fully, but maybe not quite there yet. Um, the I, that the value of co-design and participatory design and community-led design. Uh, it's something that we haven't really seen before, right? Designers for a long time, and not to throw my own industry under the bus here, but... That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Yeah, for a long time, we had this very Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, we are the all-seeing, all-knowing, you know, designer, and we are the experts in the room. And what social work has taught me as a designer is that I am not the expert. I am the conduit by which information moves through. And the, the way I have explained this best, I, I did a lecture at, in at social work actually uh, last week at Boston College. And the way I explain the role of the designer now is... is um, in the movie Shawshank Redemption, not to give anything away, but the movie's been out a while. But in the movie Shawshank Redemption, uh, Tim Robbins, the you know the main character, finally escapes prison um, through a sewer pipe. 
And I, I liken the designer to the sewer pipe. Our, our, our job is just to deliver Tim through, you know, and, <laughs> and that we are not a part of the story, right? And his freedom, his, you know, is our goal there in that situation. And then we're up, right? So we are the shit pipe by which information <laughs> moves through. And, and Sam, I'll tell you, after being in this industry for, you know, 20, you know, almost 25 years, it's very humbling, you know, and to think about it from that perspective. Are the skills in that space, because I agree, like everything you said about doing this work in the social workspace is kind of, to me, like the ideal of how design should work, right? And are the skills then more around facilitation and, gosh, maybe even like synthesis? What does the designer actually do, you know, in delivering that freedom through the pipe? Yeah. Um, Facilitation is a big thing. I also think providing, you know, a level of, you know, taking someone through the design thinking process without being so academic about it. Yeah. Like a, like a guide, right? Right. Right. Like, yeah, like a guide, you know, you're kind of just helping folks through this process. Uh, I think the hardest thing about design thinking that we have to, you know, that we're, we're doing, um, whether we're a designer. And the thing is, we are all designers, right? So let me let me correct that. Like, I just happen to get paid to do this for a living. And this is the thing I do 100% of my time in, in my profession, but we are all designers, right? And so I think, yes, our role is more facilitator. I don't even like to say educator. I mean, it's just like we, you know, just walking folks through a framework. And the hardest part is the divergent convergent part, right? As we get folks to sort of imagine ideas and, and, and try to think out of the box, you know, sometimes the box by which people are 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 trying to get out of is is a really tough box. And we as designers, and I've seen this. I mean, and I've I've been guilty of this myself. Is that um, we put a happy face on design a lot. Like, hey, it's gonna be great. We're gonna have this awesome workshop. We're gonna produce some great outcomes. We're gonna explore some really awesome ideas and wild ideas. And we're gonna converge and make some decisions. And we're gonna build some like you know paper prototypes and and like it's gonna change the world. And it's like no, it it, it I mean we hope it will help change or make a positive impact. But I think sometimes the the glee I'll say for me. Now I, I don't want to speak for other designers. Oh, no, I think a lot of designers can be overly optimistic. Yeah. I've certainly learned that through the doing this podcast, that right, even good design, as we say, well, it's not good for everyone. And sometimes the outcomes just, just suck. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's about putting for, this, for us in the role of sort of the facilitator as, as the designer, if you will, is about putting the right lens on the situation and then gently gently approaching that in terms of exploring ideas because one of the things i you know you had asked about what skills you need one of the other skills is that you do not want to cause more harm or trauma to folks who are involved in a co-design process they're already going through tough times right so like you know here we are uh using you know sitting on a zoom call using technology to do these things sitting you know in our respective homes right now recording this, you know, and, and I'll hold a lot of uh, interviews and community advisory board meetings like this too. And folks are calling in on their phones or their laptops and the situation is not the same. You know, I, I am not living where they're living. And I just really want to be very thoughtful and mindful of that as well. So there's, there, there's still a, there's still a big gap there that I think we have to, that we're learning to uh, understand better. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Chokdi. I appreciate the overview on this. Listeners, to see more of Chokdi's work, visit madpow.com. 
And stick around and we'll bring Rachel Dikas into the conversation after a quick break. Design Museum Everywhere's week-long event, Design Museum Week, is coming soon. Join us April 25th to 29th to celebrate accomplishments, share new ideas, and inspire through design. The week will reconceptualize design's role in 21st century systems and issues through dozens of events that mash up our 12 impact areas. Workplace, business, play, entrepreneurship, sustainability, education, healthcare, social impact, data visualization, diversity, vibrant cities, and civic innovation. Design Museum Week 2022 will feature five days of hybrid online, offline events that spark conversation, inspire leaders, and educate professionals working in all areas of design. While most sessions will be virtual, we look forward to welcoming attendees for in-person gatherings as well in cities across the U.S. Go to designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on events to get your tickets today. Okay, we're back and we're joined by our special guest, Rachel Dikas. Rachel is a designer and licensed clinical social worker dedicated to trauma responsive practices in design. She's the founder of Social Workers Who Design and works with design teams worldwide on ethical and trauma-informed design and research practices. With over 20 years of experience as an executive leader across serious and complex cause-driven social justice issues, Rachel's designs thoughtfully and ethically include social and other care workers in design. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, for sure. I've been really enjoying your posts and your work. I think we should get back to basics here. I had a great conversation with Chokdi, but now I would love for you to tell us <laughs> what is social work and, and what are some of the common misconceptions people have about social work? Mm, that's a good question. So social work is a practice-based discipline. It also has roots with connections to um, academic preparation in most um, states, in the at least in the U.S. and in most parts of the world. You have to have a degree in social work in order to call yourself a social worker, part of licensure requirements and things and whatnot. But social workers are are really trained to work with and advocate for people, communities, organizations around the world. And this is done through a, a very holistic way of ensuring that people are safe and that they have the resources and the services that they need. And when you you know, talk to folks about social work, like what are they surprised to learn in terms of the impact that social work can have? I can almost go back to some of those early conversations that I had with social work colleagues who were encouraging me to pursue a degree in social work. I myself, at one point many years ago, had a very limiting um, understanding of what social work was as a discipline and what social workers could actually do in terms of actual practice. You know, for me, I, I studied what we call as uh, macro social work. So I did this track that was, uh, you know, specifically called advocacy, leadership and social change. So very clear that I was going to be working in systems and spaces that were very much focused on systems redesign, systems thinking and advocacy for for people maybe on a policy or administrative or programmatic you know, perspective. But I also have my clinical license as well, so which is actually fairly unique. Not a lot of macro social workers end up wanting to pursue their clinical licensure. 
So I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that, is that social workers aren't just doing one-on-one um, -on -one or group therapy, that we aren't just going into um, individuals' homes and doing things that are causing more harm. Now, that does occur. Uh, that's a, it's a very unfortunate um, aspect of social work practice, that we are sometimes um, expected to or asked to be complicit in other harmful systems. So it's something that I think is, you know, is very, uh, there's some, there's some themes that are similar to what uh, Chokti was talking about in the, in the first segment when it comes to design. What does it look like when it's done well? Yeah. Ooh, when it's done well. I think when it's done well, you can really see beyond just data points and quantitative metrics that people's lives are changed and they're changed for the better and that they had a deep and thoughtful say in that as well. You know, I'm thinking about um, some of the work that um, I, I feel very fortunate that I got to do at Veterans Affairs with the Healthcare for Homeless Veterans program. Um, it was one of the things that drew me to wanting to be, uh, to do my field placement as an MSW student at VA because I thought and still believe that housing um, is a is a right. That, that's a rights-based initiative. And the fact that that was a program that was looking at it as a, as a healthcare right as well in a federal system was incredibly intriguing to me. So uh, you know, through uh, you know a program like that, um, I can use that as an example to to think through the the answer to this question. You know, we 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 didn't try to heal people or insist that they needed to um, you know recover from a range of things before we actually gave them the the basic foundation of what they needed in order to succeed and define that success on their own terms. So there were significant elements of of taking an, an approach of harm reduction. Um, a housing first approach, and then wrapping around all the various services that an individual or their family might need. Um, to me, just, you know, I can think back because I was with the VA for just under seven years, and I got to see the evolution of what that kind of stability and what kind of service and resource can actually provide to an individual or a collection of individuals. So, I think when social work is done well, it is it's ethical, it's thoughtful, it is multidisciplinary, and it is centering the individuals who are in need of a range of services. Chokti and I talked about this a little bit. I would love to get your perspective on how design and social work intersect. You know, I mentioned that like they seem just to be so well connected because they're both about people, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, Debbie Millman mentioned this uh, on a recent podcast she did with Brene Brown uh, talking about, you know, why design matters. And uh, and I just I just loved that. Well, I just love that there's there is this elevation of, you know, someone that is so well known in social work, someone who is so well known in design talking about how how there are intersections between these two disciplines. For me, I can I can definitely at this point I can look back and see all of these different hints and signs of where there were social work values and design methods that were definitely intersecting in these informal ways. Like we never would have explicitly said like we're doing a design thinking process right. or <laughs> or these are the values that we are embracing. I mean, it was just it was just the way that we did that work. And so much of it has these for me, had these roots in really in, in punk rock ethics, to be quite honest, <laughs> to me, that that's really the, so, so much of the origin, um, you know, fighting the, the, 
the proverbial man, uh, you know, wanting to uh, reimagine or tear down systems and build new ones, but then always just, you know, centering and advocating for people and doing that with them. So doing that in community with them. I'm curious if there was a time when you discovered that design and social work like really need to be linked. Yeah. So there are two very clear opportunities. And one one occurred before I was ever a social worker. So I was working for an organization called Illinois Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty. This was literally exactly 20 years ago. And we were a, a tiny nonprofit. I mean, literally, I was when I was hired. I was the second person, so we doubled in size. <laughs> we um, we had this this very small office in the back corner of the the American Civil Liberties Union of Illinois office that was in Chicago, right on Michigan Avenue. So just uh, just unbelievable the the space that we had and the presence that we had. But the the death penalty was such a huge issue in the in the state of Illinois, but also around the country at the time. So imagine orient your brain to being like pre-social media, dial up internet connection, you know, story stayed stories for a very long time. And there was a lot of attention that was on um, ICADP and the work that we were doing because of this tipping of the scales. Like at the time, more men had been exonerated and found innocent than had been executed um, because of the death penalty. So it drew a lot of people into our orbit. So we had uh, musicians, artists, um, designers, graphic designers who wanted to volunteer their time, who wanted to collaborate with us in different ways. And I think that was the first, that, that was this first really explicit, exciting time where I got to see this, this fusion of other things that I'm also interested in and passionate about in terms of music and art and design and photography with a social justice cause, a very explicit, like this is cause-driven work. And I worked very closely at the time with a designer named Chris May, who I believe is still a designer in Chicago. And he um, he just said, you know, he wanted to build up his portfolio and he offered to uh, to create a brochure for us and um, and think about how the the history and the story of the coalition could be brought into like you know marketing materials, if you will, or something that could help us you know fundraise or generate more donations. And we spent a lot of time together. So I mean, I absolutely said like yes, like I'll work with you. Like this would be amazing. And he just he shadowed me on different meetings when I was going around you know, traveling around the city. Um, he came. We just had a lot of conversations about the history of the death penalty. Uh, what did it look like um, up until that moment in Illinois? And I remember he came up with this just absolutely stunning illustration that really threaded um, these individuals who had been exonerated and those who had been um, sentenced to death and executed in, in the most beautiful visual way. And I mean, just even talking about it makes my like heart race a little bit in a in a good way. <laughs> and I just I I wanted more of that. You know, mm, I was just mm -hmm. um, I was it, it was an exciting opportunity to get to work with him on that project. Um, he gained and he learned so much himself and just um, just finding just being on this pursuit to find other ways to um, to do more of that kind of work. So then fast forward to pursuing my MSW and I meet another amazing designer, Maya Brock, who had started and founded this small design organization called the Champaign-Urbana Design Org um, here in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. And we just, we literally had this chance meeting 
um, at a farm to table dinner and we started talking and within a matter of minutes, we realized that we shared a birthday. I don't know how and why that came up in conversation, but we share a birthday, March 29th. She was sharing how, you know, she had this group of designers who wanted to give back to the local community and um, she wanted to, to to form a program where where we could identify a local nonprofit, we could come up with a new logo and website and branding materials for them. And so she asked me, like, you know, do you know anyone who might understand like a little bit about design and the local nonprofit landscape? And I was like, this was meant to be, you know. <laughs> so I so I got very involved with Kudo, and we did two of those events over the course of a couple of years. And um, I ended up joining the board of the Kudo and was just, I just got immersed in the language of design and the process of design. And when we were doing these, um, you know, we didn't call it a hackathon. We called it a, a you know, an all day design-a-thon or a design charrette because we brought in the individuals with those nonprofits, people who were served and benefited from those nonprofits or volunteer with those nonprofits as part of that process. And I act as this, you know, you know, uh, Chokdi was talking about being like a conduit. Like I act as this conduit or as this bridge between the designers and those with these organizations. And so when there would be an idea, I would I would help to, I wouldn't help to soften the delivery. I would just help to translate what this meant from a design perspective. Or I would help to like amplify, like, you know, we, we need to say certain things when it came to content. So I was like wearing multiple hats, juggling it. And I was just, I was just absolutely in flow. I just loved it. I just loved it. And so those are the two that really, really stick out for me. Tell us about now the work that you're doing. It just seems like a natural progression into social workers who design. Yeah, you know, it's um, it's been this slow growing evolution. You know, so when I mentioned some of this work of working on um, abolition of the death penalty 20 years ago and that story with Chris May to then, you know, 10 years, almost 10 years later and this story with Maya Brooke, you know, now here we are like, you know, 10, 12, 13 years later and it's been just this, uh, this pursuit of purpose, really, and really wanting to find um, explicit ways to not choose one or the other, but to find ways to actually integrate these two disciplines. Um, because, you know, when I was practicing as a social worker, and especially at the VA, I, I had the, I did have the opportunity to bring in some of that previous work experience or these other interests and these other passions. I mean, you really have to be multifaceted when you're working on some of these serious and complex issues, like I was with housing and homelessness. But when I was working at the School of Social Work, it was almost, um, I felt like it was discouraged that I had more than one interest or that uh, it wasn't as easily accessible, if you will. I felt like I was constantly using my own social work skills, my very own training that I received from that program to advocate for social workers being in other spaces. And one of those spaces for me was was like social workers are needed in design. Like they're not needed just in healthcare or in other systems. It's like, we need these skill sets. Like this is exactly what that data is telling us. This is what these reports, this is what these social work futuring um, you know, conversations or like, you know, like what are the skills of the futures needed for social workers? They were all indicating design centric skills. And so instead of, um, 
I guess instead of asking for permission to do it, I just started doing the work. I just started getting back to some of those activist roots and finding those opportunities to talk about these things. And probably that first explicit opportunity was um, was getting to speak at the, the National Association of Social Workers Conference in the summer of 2018, because um, I was was brought there with a, a team of other social workers who were working on career services. And one of the things that that we were given a platform for was like, you know, oh, you get to do a presentation and you could talk about whatever you want. And I thought, I want to talk about design. I'm going to talk about design for social workers. And I had this captive audience that then they, they swarmed me like a bunch of bees and said, I want to know more. Like, I want to know what you're talking about and where can I get involved? I was like, oh, okay. So this is a... This, this is, is a thing. Gr- this is a, so this is a thing. I'm not the only one who's curious about this. And I, I just kept trying to find ways to dial that up and to have those conversations. And then instead of focusing so much attention at that time on trying to convince social workers that de- that design had value, I just thought I'm going I'm going to deepen my understanding and experience in design. So I started going to design conferences. I applied to start working on my MFA at the University of Illinois. And I just I just made a different kind of a commitment to it. I think this intersection of social work and, and design and specifically design thinking has been so interesting because I'm coming at it from the design end of it. And it's been, for me, it's been the most eye-opening thing, I think, to work with social workers, to really better understand how you all think, how you all approach community and, and, and to be, you know, cause-driven. And I think a lot of it is that the design end comes from a for-profit kind of space, right? We're, we're hired by clients to make something, fix something, build something, innovate on something. And applying our skills to social impact is not entirely brand new, but I think our approach hasn't always been, uh, our approach needs work. So I'd, I'd love to hear from you, Rachel, like as design starts to have, you know, starts to move more into the social justice, the social impact space, how can we as an industry and we as practitioners, how might we approach this in, in a more social work way? Mm, it's a good question. I definitely see it as, you know, I'm, I'm definitely hearing these themes of for profit uh, versus or and uh, for purpose. Um, but I, d- I do think it's on this continuum. You know, there are designers who are going to be working explicitly in industries that are just they're, they're for profit and there might be some purpose, but it might not have a, a true like social good or social justice purpose um, behind it. Um, I I think once I started putting out into the world this organization, Social Workers Who Design, I I thought, you know, I'll attract social workers because that's who I want. I want to know who are these other social workers who are exploring this, who are doing this work already, who um who are just they're they're in the thick of it, and maybe they're tr- also trying to find others like me who are who are doing this as well. But what I ended up doing, what ended up happening, I should say, is that designers and social workers have been gravitating towards this uh, pretty fairly equally. And I would say if I probably counted the numbers, I probably have far more designers who have been asking me, how do I do work that you're doing? Because I feel like I, you know, I'm making a lot of money. I'm, um, uh, which is a, you know, a big difference for your average social worker. Your average social worker is not making nearly as much as a, as a designer might be making in practice, although we might be working on things in very similar ways. 
Um, but designers coming to me uh, of all um, age ranges and from all different um, scopes of practice saying things like, I just don't feel like I have my work has purpose. And how can I get more involved in, you know, more social impact work or social innovation work? And so I've entertained a lot of these conversations I've had. I probably I would say on average, I might have about two to five hours worth of those conversations every single week. Sometimes they're students who are thinking about going back to school or, um, you know, changing their, changing their degree. Um, I, I really think one of the, one of the ways that I um, commonly tell people is, you know, what are you, what are you interested in? What, what injustices can you just absolutely not, um, uh, not stand by and sit back and watch occur. Now, at, at, at this stage, there are many injustices. There are a lot of things that people can be very passionate about or very, or be multi-passionate about. So I think that's one of the places where I, where I start. And, um, especially for, I would say younger social workers, and even younger designers, like they sometimes struggle with identifying what is that thing that they're pissed off about. Um, I mean, at this point, you know, I'm, 46 years old, I've got many things that I have been pissed off about. <laughs> I have many things that I continue to be like upset about and that I want to see change and advocate for. So that's the, that's the starting point. Um, I think the, the next layer or level of that is really understanding uh, what is it that you want to do and are you wanting to do things for people or are you wanting to do things with them or are you wanting to, you know, train and maybe amplify people to to make sure that they have those resources and they have that power themselves to actually do the work. Most people, you know, we know this because we've done community-based activist work over the course of our lives, that, that many individuals and communities are they are their best advocates. Um, they don't necessarily always need us, um, but what can we do to amplify their voices that are already existing in these spaces? I mean, that was one of the things that we did. Again, I go back to so much of that work on abolition because we we had this powerhouse of attorneys and lawyers and faculty from Northwestern Law School, University of Chicago Law School. We had the attention of literally international media. I mean. Um, Desmond Tutu was calling us. We were on the Oprah show. I mean, we, ha- we, how, and we had to think of like, how can we capitalize on these resources that are coming into our tiny organization and make sure that the voices of the people who are most impacted are being center stage to all of this. Designers don't, I don't think most designers naturally think of it that way, but if you pull, you know, look at or pull out some of the the just the trainings of of grassroots organizing, community based work. I mean, that is essential to understanding how we can change the discipline of design. Yeah, no, I, I uh, yeah, I agree. I think I think that's what social work is doing. That's probably one of the biggest lessons when we teach this at Boston College in our design thinking programs is that we are designing with, not designing for, and that's been a huge shift in the language. We're Rachel, as you're saying, like, you know, community-based advocacy, we are, the designers are no longer center stage. We are, we are the backup band. In fact, we're not even a backup band. We're like the people in the sound booth. Like, we're not even on the stage anymore, right? Like, and I think the more we can play that role and, and learn, you know, these lessons are very humbling for an industry that has been, we fought as designers to get in the room with engineers and other technologists, right? So I think that was our first sort of like, hey, don't just stick us at the end to try to make something look pretty and market it, right? Like 
let us help with the strategy. But now that we have that space and we're in the beginning of the conversations, how can we utilize that privilege to make sure that we are being advocates for folks? Because, uh, you know, as, as the, uh, as the design justice, um, network, uh, says, like, Design touches so many people's lives, but so few of us actually get to design, right? Um, actually, and and so, so yeah, I think you know we. <laughs> it's great. It's I mean, it's great for me, and I think Sam would agree too that the capital D industry of design has been you know knocked down a few rungs down to earth and be like, okay, like we're all in this together. Yeah, that actually, if I could ask, because uh, Chokdi and, and you, Rachel, both have mentioned these two words, you know trauma and humility. And I wonder how can designers learn or get more trauma literacy and how do we build some of this humility into design? I mean, there's something that is coming to mind that Chokti just said, and it made me think about one of the trauma-informed care principles from SAMHSA, Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration and, and the CDC. And it's around this, um, this principle of um, peer support and mutuality um, and it has these threads of, of trust and, uh, you know, collaboration with it too. But one of the questions that, you know, when I talk through some of those principles, one of the questions that I often ask um, more design-centric audiences is this question around who are we unintentionally leaving out and who are we intentionally excluding as part of these processes? And that is a question that that requires, in fact, it mandates that we integrate multiple moments of pause throughout the design research process. So that's one of the things that I've I've been really um, uh, just doubling down on, and where I have found my um, my skills as a social worker are definitely needed in some of these spaces, and especially working on certain types of issues. Um, I think when it comes to building. Uh, just humility in general, but also just this trauma literacy, it really comes from taking some of what we know from, from, from the CDC and SAMHSA, because I do think that's a strong foundation. But I think where it can, where it can lead us to misstepping is that those principles were originally um, intended for and written for, you know, an emergency responder audience, a healthcare audience, you know, individuals like me, um, who are practicing social work, or you know, especially when I was working in the federal government, um, and they so they don't necessarily they don't translate really well to a design centric audience, and that's one of the things that I've been playing around with was, well, if we have these six core principles. How could we rewrite these in a way that is understandable and is applicable to just the design process or to designers? So those who are either in practice and in industry or those who are design students in education, because I've been I have been speaking to a lot of design classes over the past couple of years, which is exciting because they want to know about these things. And students are curious about these things because they are experiencing and living through multiple traumas. And so how do we how do we talk about that? I want to mention some of the work from Sean Genwright because he has this uh, you know amazing new book that just came out within the past few weeks called The Four Pivots, and he he is specifically I felt like he was he's talking to designers in this book. Now he does have a small mention about design and human centered design and the process and how he has integrated that in his own work, um, but this this focus around healing and being both trauma informed and I like to say trauma responsive, but how can we also be healing centered in this work, I think is essential. Um, 
he asked this great question recently. He said, when are you going to make time to heal? And I would ask that question of designers, you know, throughout this exploration of a lot of the work that I do around these intersections of social work and design, um, this focus on trauma responsive design, these conversations I have been, I, I thought the focus should be, you know, we need to be trauma informed because of the people that we are designing with or for, because of the people that we are bringing into this process. Like, how dare we do unethical research or unethical processes that are not um, responding to or acknowledging or are potentially like creating significant harm for individuals as part of this work. But throughout that exploration and throughout, at this point, probably hundreds of conversations with designers around the world, what has come up is that a lot of designers, the way that they design is heavily influenced by their own trauma. I mean, I've had designers mention that time and time again. And so it makes me think about how can we be trauma-informed and trauma-responsive for all of us? So not just for other people, like with ourselves as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. One of the projects I'm working on now um, at MadPow, we're doing five workshops a week with this client. Our work is to help members of the BIPOC community of this organization feel like they belong at the organization. And it's heavy work. Like it's, it's heavy for me. And I cannot even imagine what it's like to work at this organization to have to face this each day. And so every Friday, we get we gather as a group, um, a whole collaborative team from the client side and, and our side. And we have um, a social worker, Dr. Sam Bradley over at BC working with us on this project. And he leads us through what we call centering, grounding, and healing. And we have a whole 90 minutes dedicated to this. It's not enough time, but it's, you know, but it gives us all a chance to sort of collect our breath and breathe because during the week, I'm taking them through a little bit more of the design process of, hey, how, you know, how are we going to build a prototype? You know, and, and we have, we don't have a lot of time, unfortunately. And so I think that question that you asked right there, Rachel, is like, when are designers making time for themselves to sort of heal as well? And I walk away from those sessions on Friday and say, like, we need that. Like that was purposely built in by a social worker into the design process that we have with this client, which I wouldn't have thought of doing, by the way, honestly, in 25 years of design, my that's, I think that's where, you know, the, the designer is still, tr you know, trying to design something, right? We are, our directive, at least mine has been like, we're going to get somewhere through this process. And what I love about this approach we have is we're, yes, we're going to get there and we need support and safety and care for ourselves in this space, you know, to, to do that work. And so, yeah, that, uh, that again, what social workers I'm not sure what designers add to social workers. I'm still like thinking about this other than, you know, we have this process by which we get real big and then we get real small and make decisions and we embrace failure. Like, I think that's, that's definitely, so I definitely feel what Rachel's saying, like healing needs to be central to our work as people who are participating in, in the process as well. So true. Thank you both for this great conversation. I love this topic and we're, I want to go even deeper on the show. Rachel, thank you so much for sharing your experience, your expertise. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much, both of you. Listeners, to see more of Rachel's work, go to socialworkerswho.design.
Okay, folks, now it's that time. Every week we share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I will kick us off with some really unique artwork from a London-based artist named Helga Stenzel. And what she does is put her garments out to pasture, if you will. So there's a clothesline. And then what she's doing is sort of like hanging sweatshirts, socks, laundry, <laughs> uh, but in ways that make them look like animals that are like kind of roaming the countryside. So if I can try to describe one of these, my favorite is actually this, uh, it's called Londrosaurus. And the background is just like really like kind of desolate, like Rocky Mountain scape. And then there's just like this blue clothesline just kind of like drooped across the middle of the piece. And then there's like boxers and socks and pants and then some more socks. And altogether, it looks like a dinosaur skeleton. It's so cool. And then another one is the Pegasus. It is a rolling green open pasture field. And it looks like a hoodie and a dish towel are hung, but then there's also lots of different like clothespins, which make like the mane of the horse. So these are super cool and really unique. There's a bunch of different prints available and she's got a bunch of other like really cool artwork. So check out helgastencil.com and we'll post the link. All right, Choked, you're up. You know, it's funny, I have this poster hanging in my, uh, my office here, um, at my home office. And uh, it's just something that I, I, it's, a, it's been around the design industry a while. And I, I had asked earlier, can I curse on this podcast? <laughs> but so I'll, I'll keep it clean a little bit. Uh, but uh, the company is, uh, the poster is from the folk, good folks at Good FN Design Advice. <laughs> so gfda.co, uh, they have a number of awesome um, sort of motivational posters. And the, the rumor has it that Johnny Ive at Apple had one thing hanging in his office at uh, at Apple, and it was this poster. So, um, you know, it's very motivational. It's uh, it, and it curses a bit. So uh, maybe not. Uh, you know, and then they have a censored version where they cross up the yeah the F word. So, highly recommend you all going checking out gfda.co for this work. Um, and yeah, it just. You know, every time I need good advice, I just kind of look at it. And uh, Sam, you know this poster, I believe, well. Oh, yeah. Get some good motivation. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Listeners, if you have a great weekly dose of good design, I would love to share it on the podcast. So you can tweet it or share it with me. I'm on Twitter at Sam Aquilano. Chokti, always a pleasure. I love our conversations. Thanks so much for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Sam. That's our show. I, again, want to thank Chokdi Rutirasiri and Rachel Dikas for joining us. And thank you all for listening. We'll post links to the resources we discussed today on our episode page. So visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. You can always find the latest from us at the Design Museum on social media. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. We're also on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. We have an awesome email newsletter that comes out every week. Get the latest from the Design Museum in your inbox, hear about upcoming events and initiatives. You can subscribe to that right at the bottom of our site. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Design Is Everywhere, anywhere you listen to podcasts. When you do that, especially those ratings and reviews, it helps us reach more people so we can keep chatting about the transformative power of design each week. Thanks for your support. This episode was written, edited, and produced by the amazing Amor Yates. 
Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the whole team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for being here, and we'll talk again next week.